Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And this morning we're considering verses 1 through 5. Before we do that, let me pray once more for the reading and preaching of God's Word. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your Word. It is a precious treasure to us. And so we pray that you would help us to see it as such, that you would give us eyes of faith, that you would give us ears to hear your word and to uh, take heart, take it to heart and to apply it to our lives, that we would not only hear it, but that we would believe it and that we would seek to obey your word. Uh, Only you can give us the strength and grace to do this. And so we ask that you would do so in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Each generation has its rallying cry or slogan. I think, think, thank you, Wesley, for reminding us believers of our rallying cry, Christ crucified for sinners. Christ is Lord. Um, I think if you could sum, sum up one of the slogans or rally cries of our culture, it would be something along the lines of, just be yourself. Just be you. There's a quote be the first-rate you rather than the second-rate somebody else. Uh, I have a friend who has a tattoo, and it says, Be you, Y-O-U, tiful. Beautiful, be beautiful. There's this, there's this desire of our culture to be true to yourself, to be who you are. Don't let anybody shape you or mold you into their image or into how they think you should behave. So there's another... Uh, another phrase or slogan, dance like nobody's watching, right? Don't worry about what other people think about what you're doing or how you're behaving. Just be true to yourself. And I think there is, you know, there's a sense in which that is right. We should be true to ourselves. We should be, uh, we should be ourselves and not try to be other people. But there is a problem because all too often in our, in our culture, the, the phrase or the slogan is outside of the context of the fact that we are created by God in His image. That's what got us in trouble in the first place, right? In the garden, Adam and Eve sought to be themselves outside of the lordship of God, outside of His sovereignty and His lordship. And so really, when people are being themselves, they are being a broken themselves. They are being they are reflecting a broken and marred image of the one who created them. You can only be free to really be yourself when you find your identity in the context of being created in the image of God. And even further than that, you can only be free to truly be yourself when you find your identity in the context of Christ as your savior and being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We can only be true to ourselves as we were created by God when we find our identity in God and Him who saved us. And this gives us true freedom. This gives us the true freedom that our culture is longing for in those slogans. In Christ, we are truly free to be who He has created us to be for His glory. And this really is what we see in Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1-5. through Look at that passage as I read it for us. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you 
or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. May God bless the reading and preaching of his holy word. In our previous passage, Paul wanted the Corinthians to see the limitations of their own judgments about themselves. He says, don't be deceived about yourselves. Don't think too highly of yourselves. Don't be puffed up about who you are or about your leaders. They should recognize, rather, that leaders were given to them by God for their benefit in Christ. Not that they would glory in their leaders and begin even worshiping them, treating them as idols, but so that they might grow and benefit from their leadership. And in our passage today, we see another result of understanding the the limitations of human wisdom and human judgment. Paul is free to pursue his task from the Lord, without worrying about what what other people think about him, the Corinthians and the false teachers there. But also, he's free from even having to worry about his own judgments about himself, for he knows that the only infallible judge is God. And that judgment won't come until the proper time, when the Lord will come and reveal all things. So here's the main idea from our passage. God alone is judge. So you don't have to obsess over what others think about you. And you don't have to obsess over what you think about yourself. Instead, you are freed from people-pleasing and you are freed from your own self-shame in order that you might live for the one who saved you, for his glory. So to walk through this passage, I'm just going to, to go through it as Paul lays it out, considering four questions from the perspective of Paul. Who are we? This is Paul. Who are we, he and the other apostles? What is required of us? Who's the judge of whether or not we attain this? And when will that judgment take place? So as we see Paul answer these questions for himself, we will see that they also apply to each one of us in one way or another. So let's start with the first question. Who are we? Who are we, Paul answers. Paul says in verse 1, this is how you should think about us. In other words, not as you have been thinking about us. He wants to correct their thinking here. They've been thinking wrongly. Don't think of us like we're each jockeying for a better position, a higher position, trying to look better than each other. Uh, don't, Don't think of us like you have been attaching yourself to one or the other in order to get an ego boost for yourself. Here's how you should think about us as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. This is what Paul said in the last chapter, chapter 3, verse 5. What is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. Further, they are stewards. They are servants of Christ and stewards of God's mysteries. A steward is one who manages something on behalf of someone else. He's entrusted with some responsibility, some task, resources, and he's the one in charge of getting it done. But he's not the master. He's still a servant. He is serving underneath the master. He is accountable to the master for the quality of his management. He's a steward. 
Paul and the other apostles were stewards of the mystery of God. And we saw this term mystery earlier also. Uh, It's there in uh, verse 1. I didn't come proclaiming to you the mystery or testimony of God in lofty speech or wisdom. And it's in verse uh, 7 as well. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom, a mystery that is, from God. And remember what we said this means. It's, it's a mystery, not like the board game Clue, where there's, you make a series of observations, and by logic you find out who did it. You find out the, the, the mystery is solved. You find out who committed the murder. Mystery in the Bible refers to something which has long been hidden, but is now revealed. So a mystery in the biblical sense is not something you find out, something God shows you, something God sovereignly reveals. And the mystery Paul's talking about is what? Do you remember? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The the mystery long hidden, Christ, God becoming a man and walking among us. The Lord of glory taking the form of a servant and being crucified for sinners and being raised from the dead. They are servants of Christ and stewards of this mystery. Paul doesn't want to minimize the task he's been given, the role that he plays, but he makes every effort to try and take the eyes of the Corinthians off of himself and on to Christ. Don't look at me, I'm just a servant. I'm just a steward of the mysteries of God. Rather, look to Christ. And here's a point of application for us. Now, we're not the same of Paul as Paul. We're not apostles. We don't have the same responsibilities, responsibilities that he had. And yet, each one of us has a role to play in the church. Each one of us are servants of Christ. And each one of us is a steward. We've been given gifts for the building up of his church, for the furtherance of his kingdom. We've been given a message, and we must manage it well All that God has given us. So let me bring out two applications. First, as a servant of Christ, your goal is to carry out your tasks in such a way that the focus is not on you as a servant, but upon Christ. As much as possible. It's almost like you want to be an invisible servant. You want to hide in the background so that Christ might be seen in all all His glory. You may have seen a lighthearted, funny video about a man and his wife, and she is just fed up with the chores that she's having to do around the house. So he lets her in on a little secret. He takes her over uh, and says, you see this little basket here? It's, it's amazing. I don't know how it happens, but I just put all my dirty clothes in this basket. All of them. I just put all of them in there. And the next morning, they are clean. They are folded, and they are nice, in a nice pile on top of my bed. And of course, she is exasperated she can't believe he's actually being serious but he says wait there's more there's more you see this coffee table you can leave dishes knives forks anything leave anything on this table and in the morning it is completely cleared it's completely cleaned and she is an invisible servant right he doesn't get it now she he should have been helping her of course uh, we, he should have noticed and helped her out, and all too often we men can be just like the man in the video. But there's a sense in which we ought to serve so quietly, we ought to be sneaky servants. We ought to serve so sneakily that our service is seen, but we are not. 
so that Christ in his glory is seen. I'm not saying we can never serve any, anyone in such a way that they don't know you did it. You might want them to know your love for them. You might want them to know that it was done in the name of Christ. I'm speaking more about the motives of our service here. We want our service to point to Christ and not ourselves. So as Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, Beware, this is a warning, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues. And in the streets that they may be praised by others, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving might be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Paul's aim as a servant was to take the eyes of others off himself and on to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must have that same aim. There's a second application for us here. Like Paul, each one of us who are Christians have been entrusted with something to be used for the glory of God, for the building of His church, for the furtherance of His mission. We are stewards of the gifts God has given us and stewards of the message He has given us. What are we doing with those things He's entrusted to us? What are you doing with the gifts He has given you, with the resources He has given you to be used for His glory? So first you have to ask yourself, what gift has he given me? What resources has he given me? What areas of influence has he given me? What am I good at? What talents do I have? What have other people told me has been an encouragement to them? And these are all gifts from God to be used for his glory. Are you using them? Are you busy at work using all that God has given you for the most important thing in all the world, giving glory to Jesus Christ. So maybe you're good at talking with unbelievers about spiritual things. Maybe you're good at listening to people with problems and empathizing with them, showing your care and concern for them. Maybe you're good at organizing details and volunteers. Maybe you're good at administrative tasks or website design or working with children or setting up chairs and tables. The point is, we each have been entrusted with gifts and a message. How are we stewarding those things God has placed in our hands? Because this is what Paul says is required of servants and stewards. Our first question, who are we? We are servants and stewards of God. Our second question, what is required of us? And the answer is in verse 2. It's required of stewards that they be found faithful. What is required of Paul and the apostles as servants and stewards of God? Faithfulness. They are required to be faithful. A faithful servant or steward is one who is found worthy of trust. One who executes the will of the master according to the instructions given. So what is needed for a steward to be faithful? He needs to know what the task is. And he needs to know how to accomplish his task. For Paul, the task was to preach the gospel so that people might come to faith in Christ, that they might come into the family of God, that churches might be planted. And how was he to accomplish this? By preaching, not in words of eloquent wisdom, not by stunning power or rhetorical tricks, but by the simple proclamation of Christ crucified for sinners. 
So it wouldn't do for Paul to change the task, and it wouldn't do for him to change the manner in which he fulfilled the task. Both are essential to his faithfulness. And this is what we are called to to as individuals in the church. Faithfulness. We are called to be faithful. And that includes sticking with the tasks we've been given. What have we interpreted that being for our church? To love God's glory, to love God's people, and to love God's world. This is, this is what it means for us to be faithful as Christ Church Roseville in the town of Roseville, in our respective neighborhoods, to love God's glory, to love God's people, and to love God's world. And how do we do that? Well, we do it in some ways by worshiping Him week in and week out, in the gathering of our church, by being uh, lovingly committed to one another in the church, by investing in one another's lives, by taking initiative in one another's lives, and by preaching the gospel and loving our neighbors, week in and week out, seeking to do some spiritual good to one another and to those around us in the world. Now, when a pharmacist gets in order to fulfill a a prescription, his task is pretty simple. He is to carefully follow the instructions given to him by the doctor. Doctor, he doesn't make a unilateral decision that he knows best what a patient needs, and so he's going to give him this medicine instead. And he doesn't get creative, try to come up with different experiments. That would turn out really badly, wouldn't it? If he does, the patient is in big trouble, and that means he'll be in big trouble. He's accountable to someone else. His job is to follow directions, give exactly what the doctor ordered. And this is what's required of us, brothers and sisters, faithfulness. To be found trustworthy with what God has given us. The tasks He's given us and the manner in which we are to carry them out. And in the midst of our current culture, this will take some work. Some churches are tempted, we might be tempted to assimilate to the culture. And some who profess the faith are doing so by watering down doctrine. They might water down the exclusivity of Christ, that Christ alone is the one who saves. They might do so by watering down their morality. Minimizing biblical sexual values. But this is not what it means to be faithful. Not assimilating to the culture. Being true to God and His Word. Other churches might be tempted to build a wall between themselves and culture. rather than So they see the, the danger of assimilating to their culture. And so they want to build a wall between the church and the culture in order to protect themselves. So basically then the church and believers basically keep to themselves in their own subculture. We'll be safe if we just huddle around together and keep the the sinful world outside of us. But this isn't faithfulness either. Rather, faithfulness will mean remaining distinct from the culture. We can't water down biblical doctrine or morality. And we can't water down the, the message of the gospel. How else will people be saved unless they hear that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation? That Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life? That Jesus Christ is the only way you can have your sins forgiven? But neither can we wall ourselves off from the culture as a sort of monastery. We preach the gospel in love. We give reasons for why we believe what we believe. We display our love in incredible generosity to the poor. We get our hands dirty defending the weak and the oppressed. We show the world that something is different about us, not because we're better or smarter or more capable, not because we're naturally more moral than anyone else. There's something different about us because we have experienced the grace that is in Christ Jesus alone. 
And that makes us gracious people. That makes us loving, compassionate, generous people. That makes us courageous people who stand up for justice when anyone is being oppressed. It makes us compassionate people who listen to those who are oppressed and work for their good. We need to consider what faithfulness will mean for us in Rollsville. We need to consider what faithfulness will mean for us in our neighborhoods, in our circle of friends, in our circles of influence, in your vocations, in your workplace. What will faithfulness mean for you as a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God? Paul answers these questions, who are we and what is required of us? Faithfulness. But he also answers the question, who is the judge? Who is it that makes the determination whether or not a steward has faithfully carried out his task? Look at verse 3. But with me it is a very small thing, he says, that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So he begins answering this question with negative answers. Who's the judge of faithfulness? Paul says, well, I'll tell you who it ain't. It ain't you. It's not you or any other group of humans. He says, it's a very small thing to be judged by you. That means it doesn't matter to him one bit what they think because they are judging wrongly. The fallibility of human judgment frees Paul from having to obsess whether or not he's pleasing the Corinthians. But he goes even further. It's almost shocking. In fact, he says, I don't even judge myself in this. Knowing his own fallibility, his own limitations, Paul himself withholds the ultimate judgment about his own faithfulness. Isn't this amazing? How does he do that? Now note that there is some introspection here. He says, I'm, I'm not aware of anything against myself, Paul says, but I'm not thereby acquitted. So I don't think I'm being unfaithful. I'm not intentionally being unfaithful, but that doesn't mean I'm not. However, I'm not sufficient to parse these things out on my own in an exact manner. So I will wait ultimately for God to be the judge of it. It is the Lord who judges me. It's the Lord who will determine if I was found faithful or not. There is such freedom here in Paul. Now let's be careful here. This doesn't mean we shouldn't watch over one another's lives and have accountability with one another. Right? Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have written the next chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where he calls the church to account for not holding this man who is in deep immorality to account. So there, there is accountability within the church. We, we express that to one another in our covenant with one another. And it doesn't mean that we don't examine ourselves and our motives, uh, that Paul wasn't aware of anything in himself, shows that he had done that, that he had been doing that. And he just told the Corinthians what? Don't deceive yourselves. That's going to take a little bit ex of examination and introspection. But what it does mean is that since the Lord alone is judge over us, we no longer have to obsess over what other people think about us. And we don't even have to obsess over what we think about ourselves. This gives great freedom, knowing that the Lord alone will judge. My faithfulness or unfaithfulness gives me great freedom to not care what anyone else thinks about me. And do you know what this does? It actually frees us up to be faithful. 
It frees me to be who God has made me to be for his glory. When I was a teenager, especially in in high school, I wasn't free to be myself. Do you know why? Because I was so worried about what other people thought about me that I conformed to their image in order that they might like me and accept me. I wasn't free to be myself, and so... I did all kinds of things in order to be accepted by other people. It even affected the way I dressed. I was obsessed with what other people thought of me. And this is really a common trait of teenagers, isn't it? It, Didn't you feel that way as a teenager? They don't feel free to actually be who they are because they're bogged down in what other people think about them. And really, I mean, it, it may get a little easier, but we're still challenged by that as adults. And what about this? Have you ever known someone who was obsessively introspective? They can't really accomplish much because they're in a quagmire of self-examination. They are paralyzed by what they think of themselves. The person obsessed with himself cannot serve his neighbor. He's too busy looking at himself to see that his neighbor even has a need. It makes me think of Eeyore. Uh, from the Winnie the Pooh cartoon. Now, sometimes Eeyore is compassionate and does things for others, but often he's so trapped in his own misery that he can't look out and see those around him. So let's free ourselves up just a little bit. Let me free you up a little bit. Ultimately, my thoughts about your faithfulness as a Christian don't matter that much. Does that sound scandalous to you? Now, I might have some wisdom as your pastor to share with you. I might have some insight or suggestions. It always helps to get an outside perspective on our lives. But I'm fallible. I'm limited in what I can see. I'm limited in my understandings and my view of things. And ultimately, your own thoughts about yourself and your own faithfulness don't matter a whole lot either. You're fallible. You're limited. You know yourself better than anyone else in the world probably, but even you can't make that ultimate judgment. The Lord is your judge. Before Him you stand or fall. So let Him be the judge of whether or not you have been found faithful. Now outside the context of the cross, that should be a very scary thought though. The Lord being your judge. The Bible already tells us how we measure up on our own. We fail We fall short. We're unfaithful in ourselves. Every last one of us. And if we were to stand before the Lord in our own strength, by our own merit, the Bible tells us there's going to be hell to pay. But if you see this judgment that Paul is talking about in the context of the gospel of Jesus, it's a totally different thing. The gospel is not that your faithfulness makes God happy with you. It's that Jesus' faithfulness does. The gospel is not that if you work harder and harder and harder to be faithful, well, then God will see your effort and then He will accept you. It's that Jesus worked hard and was absolutely faithful to the Father in everything He said, in everything He thought, in everything that He did. And if you come to an end of yourself acknowledging there's nothing you can do to make up for your sins, 
acknowledging that the only way you're going to be saved is this, the faithfulness of another and not your own, realizing that it is only the faithfulness of Christ that can save you. Jesus lived for sinners and died for sinners. His death takes away your sin and his life adds to us the righteousness that we lacked, the unfaithfulness that we had. His faithfulness is applied to our account. And if you come to this conclusion that only Jesus can save you, and if you place your faith in Him to save you, then there is a judgment that God makes right then and there as you place your faith in Jesus Christ, and it is called justification. When you come to faith in Him, or when you came to faith, there was a decisive verdict a decisive judgment, a decisive declaration. God looked upon you no longer as a rebel, no longer as an enemy, but as a righteous and faithful son or daughter. A righteous and faithful son and daughter. Do you know the good thing about justification? This is a declaration that cannot be revoked. There are no take-backs with justification. There are no renegotiations of the contract, no second guesses, no mistakes. If you are justified in Christ, you are justified, period. And therefore, in light of this verdict, in light of this judgment, in which the believer is declared to be righteous and faithful, the judgment Paul talks about here is referring to the quality of one's stewardship, not the status of one's salvation. In other words, the question is not whether or not Paul will be saved. The question has to do with what kind of materials he used. It has to do with what kind of impact he made by the grace of God. And ultimately, it's the judgment which will be a vindication and give full expression to our justification. Here's how Michael Horton explains it. Listen to this. The great verdict awaiting the world at the end of the age is with respect not to justification, but to glorification. All who have been justified are inwardly renewed and are being conformed to Christ's image, but their cosmic vindication as the justified people of God will be revealed in the resurrection of the dead. It will be not only a verdict that we hear justification, but the glorious correspondence of that verdict with the reality that we all will behold together. Isn't that an amazing thought, brothers and sisters? Our glorification? That on that day when the Lord returns, we will be glorified. No more pain, no more sorrow, and listen to this, no more sin. No more shame. For God's judgment about us in Christ, you are righteous, will take on a whole new meaning. Our sanctification will be completed. Our salvation will be complete. And we will be like Him as we have longed to be all along. Paul says, it is the Lord who judges me. And then verse 5, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness, and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. So he answers one more question. When will this judgment take place? It will take place when the Lord returns. So wait for that, he says. When he comes, all will be brought to light. All will be revealed. That which is hidden in darkness, that which is hidden in the depths of your heart, will be revealed. And again, that sounds like a very scary thing, doesn't it? I don't know about you, 
But I don't really want anyone to know what lies buried deep in my heart. So what would we expect Paul to say then? He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness, and he will expose the motives of the heart. And at that time, each will receive their consequences from God. Each will receive their penalty from the Lord. Each will receive their disappointment from God. This is not what we read. We read, then each one will receive his commendation from God. Not condemnation, commendation. That is, each one will receive his praise from God. Do you hear what Paul is saying there? Having been justified by the grace which is in Christ. Having been given grace to fulfill our callings, the tasks the Lord has given us. On that last day, we will receive praise from God. Commendation from God. Our master saying, well done. You have been faithful knowing it's not at all our own faithfulness, knowing it is the grace of God at work in us by the power of His Holy Spirit. So we long for that day, brothers and sisters. We long for that day when we will see the Lord. We long for that day when our bodies will be glorified and all will be made right. We long for that day when our salvation will become fulfilled. But until then, we work. We work. And we strive for faithfulness, not with an aim to be people pleasers and not to quiet our own consciousness, consciences. We work hard to be faithful because we are servants of Christ. We are stewards of the message he has given us. And there are many who need to experience his love and his grace. Do you know people around you who need to experience this love and grace? Do you know people around you who aren't free to really be themselves because they have not found their identity in Christ? Friends, we are servants of Christ. We are stewards of the mystery. How could we keep it to ourselves when there are people dying all around us? And so we go to make him known, to make his love known so that others also might receive not condemnation, but commendation when he comes. Let's spend a few moments in quiet reflection thinking about how we might apply this to our hearts, how we might respond to the word of God this morning.